You are listening to the Amateur Church Podcast, where we pursue excellence in ministry with the right motivation for the sake of love. I'm Pastor Matt, and I'm so thankful that you were on this disciples journey with me. This week, we have been in the book of Ezekiel. As we have been walking through these pages this week, I have seen God's hand. Yes, a hand of punishment, justice, and wrath, but a hand of love and mercy and grace. And even though it's an Old Testament book that we've been walking through, we still see glimpses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in today's episode, we look at evangelism from Ezekiel. Now remember, evangelism simply means how we share, we evangelize, we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you may be wondering, how how is the gospel seen in Ezekiel? And, and there are many different places we could go. Ezekiel 36 and 37 that deal with the uh, uh, the the new covenant and the valley of the dry bones. We could have gone back to Ezekiel chapter one and talked about the call of Ezekiel's life, seeing the vision of God. We could look at Ezekiel eight through eleven and the glory departing and the promise that that God would one day restore. But I want to take you to Ezekiel sixteen, as I have called it, a love letter in the book of Ezekiel and show you four elements of how we can share this evangelistic good news, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and apply it to our lives uh, based on what Christ has done for us. So go with me. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1, we get a call from God to Ezekiel saying, Make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Pretty much God is saying, Let them know that they are sinful, wretched creatures, and that what they've done is the reason they are in captivity right now. And I want you to see four elements. Number one, our condition before God. See, for the Israelites, they had to know who they were without God first and foremost. That as they rebelled and rejected God, they had to know how God found them. Notice this. Thus says the Lord God in verse 3, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. Now, understand, God is using all of this descriptive language to share with them Without me, you were hopeless, you were destitute, you were despised and rejected. And that's the reminder for us that we are, according to Ephesians chapter 2, without Christ, enemies of God, children of wrath. There is a condition that we find ourselves in as sinners uh, that we, before God, uh, before God invaded our lives with the gospel, we were hopeless. That's our condition, verses 1 through 5, before God. But that's where evangelism begins. We show people where they're at. But then notice the condition with God that Israel had. It says in verse 6, When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. 
Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. You were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth. He says in verse 11, I adorned you with ultimates, uh, with ornaments. Sorry. Verse 12, I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. You were adorned with gold and silver. He then says, verse 14, then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. For Israel, this is a description that God took them in, loved them, cared for them, as we've discussed previously, clothed them in in riches, and their fame spread. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. But then notice that that condition before God, the condition with God, led them then to a condition against God. After God had, uh, in His love, showered these blessings on them, called them to Himself, and and provided this uh, relationship, look at verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. He he then goes into great description, a, a, a numerous uh, amount of uh, of 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 terrible tragic things that took place in Israel's history that they brought on themselves listen to this verse uh, 19 my bread which I gave you fine flour oil and honey which I fed you you would offer before them with a soothing aroma uh, verse 21 you slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols verse 22 beside all your abominations and harlotries you did not remember the days of your youth he says, verse uh, 20, uh, 25, you built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. God says, therefore, I have stretched my hand against you and diminished your rations. He says, you have multiplied your harlotry. Therefore, I have taken the actions that I have to make you strangers in in the land. Verse 36, because of your lewdness, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, therefore, behold, I will gather your lovers with whom you took pleasure. I will judge you like women who commit adultery, and I will give you into the hands of your lovers. Verse 41, then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. In all of this, God says, you have sinned against me. You have played the harlot. I want you to see the sinfulness and wretchedness of Israel. We talk many times about the wrath of God poured out on them, and did they really deserve it? Notice the description here. Yes, a love letter written to them had to include what they had done against them. And this is why many people today first reject God because they get a misunderstanding, misconception of His compassion. 
And second, many people reject God's ways because they don't see their own sin. I've counseled enough people, uh, not just individuals, but couples who refuse to admit their own sin, their own wrongdoing. They will blame their partner. They will blame their spouse. They will blame their girlfriend, blame their boyfriend. They'll, they'll blame everybody else, but they will not take responsibility for their own sins. And in that, that's why so many couples end up, uh, married couples end up in divorce because they do not take responsibility and see, look in the mirror. Well, in this passage, we see God showing them, you have betrayed me. You have played the harlot. You have done this. And so we see their condition before God, their condition with God, their condition against God. This is the continual story of the Old Testament. But this isn't the end of the story. At the end of chapter 16, he's going to show us our condition in Christ. Look at verse 60. Nevertheless, I love that word, regardless of everything that's happened, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now notice what he says here. So that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. He says, I will forgive you and I will have an everlasting covenant and you will be secure. It is eternal. In this, we see God's covenant is a new covenant in Jesus Christ. Not a covenant that they have and that they made and they were responsible for, but a covenant of Christ who would die, be buried, and rise again. Now, take this passage, 63 verses that show us the gospel message. That there was a time that we were without God and we had committed adultery. We had committed immorality against him. We had forsaken him. And God says, but in Christ, I will forgive you and it will be an everlasting, eternal covenant. There are some right now that they have never entered into a true relationship with God, but God is compassionate and full of love and kindness, this kessed love. And he longs to forgive you, show you grace and mercy, and turn you back to him. So as we read Ezekiel 16, yes, it is contextually a message for Israel. God chose them, God called them, and they ran away from him, and they rejected him, and they, uh, they uh, went after other lovers. But God promised a Messiah would come. And through that, Ezekiel 36 and 37, a new covenant would be made. And we are the, uh, are, are the recipients. We get the benefit of that new covenant. And my prayer for you today is that you would recognize that when you surrender to Christ, when you repent of your sins, believe in Him, and trust in Him for salvation, you will be saved. Why? Because our God is the everlasting God who makes an everlasting covenant in his son. Ezekiel 16 is a love letter, not just for Israel, but for us. Now, as we close out this episode today, today is Throwback Thursday. 
And I want to continue our study of church history, and we come to the 15th century, ultimately uh, the late 1400s, known as the time of the Spanish or the beginning of the Spanish Inquisition. But before we get to the establishment of the Spanish Inquisition, we got to go all the way back to the end of the 12th century in 1184, Pope Lucius III required all bishops to inquire into the faith of their flocks. So he said all the bishops need to go, and because there's heresy going around, the only way to stop heresy is we need to uh, have an inquiry. So he would go, uh, and he would tell all the bishops, go to your flock, and you find out what do they believe, what are they teaching, how are they living. And if a man was guilty of heresy, then what they would do in the end of the 12th century is they would just excommunicate him. They'd say, you have no part in the church anymore. But if you retract, you could be restored. And this seemed like a very biblical thing to do. And so it starts out with some positive movements. Pope Lucius III gave the authority of the bishops to excommunicate. And while some was positive, this actually led to a forbidding of the scriptures to be possessed by the laity. And in the early 13th century, it led all the way to 1229, the Synod of Toulouse with Gregory IX. Pope Gregory IX um, continued this and made the exclamation uh, that uh, laity should not be reading the scriptures on their own because they could uh, promote heresy. So there was a forbidding of that. That's a negative aspect of this that took place. And then 300 years, uh, sorry, uh, 30 years later, uh, in 1252, Pope Innocent IV authorized torture to get confessions. This is where the Inquisition, begun by Pope Lucius, actually led to, uh, to torture. And... This led to turning heretics over to the state authorities because the church did not have the authority to, to torture, but the state did. And so the state began to uh, use, uh, use their authority and burned, uh, burned many people uh, alive. And, uh, and for the next 200 years, this continued. Well, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain believed that their country would prosper if it was solely Christian. And so in that, the Pope gave them the title Catholic Kings, uh, and in 1478, they asked the Pope to establish what would be known as the Inquisition of Spain. In 1492, they expelled all the Jews and all the Muslims from the country. And un under the direction of the General of Spain, many people were brought to the stake. So uh, many were killed. Many other people who were deemed heretics uh, could have their property confiscated, taken. And Protestantism, which was spreading all throughout Europe, could not spread in Spain because Protestant books were banned. And uh, you, you see that a lot of Protestant churches did not gain any foothold in Spain. And the Spanish Inquisition lasted up until the 1800s. This is a part of our church history, our, our Christian history, that when people mention the Spanish Inquisition, yes, it began in the late, teen, late 1400s, but its establishment, or it was established in the late 1400s, but it really began all the way back with decisions uh, in the early 12th century that led to this inquiry that's uh, of excommunication, then forbidding of scriptures, then torture, then burning, 
all the way to uh, expelling people uh, from the country and, and killing them. This in and of itself was completely evil uh, because by force they were trying to make uh, converts. We do not practice that in Christianity, but it is a part of our history that we need to be aware of and know that the Catholic Church led that charge. Protestants were against the Spanish Inquisition, and praise God today that uh, that, that was ended, and it's a reminder for us that only the Holy Spirit can convict, convert, and change the heart. That's our prayer. That's our aim. And this is why evangelism is not complete until the evangelized become the evangelist. We share the good news that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And he is faithful to change our heart. I love you. I'm praying for you. Stakes in the ground.